0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right. So if you turn over to Revelation Chapter 20, we're going to look at the the, the third section of chapter 20, and then perhaps the fourth section. I hope that we get that far. And so Revelation 20 and verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they come up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are thrown also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne of God, or before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, this is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we come to uh, what we could simply title Satan's um, temporary release. And verses 7 through 10 gives us a picture of the final battle. Now, of course, if you've been tracking with the way that I see the structure of Revelation, you realize that the final battle has already been described for us. I would argue that it was described in chapter 11, I'd argue it was described in chapter 16, I'd argue it was described in chapter uh, 17, and then at the end of chapter 19. And there's two things to remember. One is that this, this view of the structure of Revelation is what is sometimes called recapitulation. That is, it's the different sections are recapping, in a sense, the same event, but from different angles, all right? Um, and so that's what I would argue is, is happening. The other thing is, is that each one of these passages, 16, 17, and then 19, and then chapter 20... All have in common the the fact that they're rooted back in ezekiel thirty eight and thirty nine, which of course, um, Gog and Magog uh, gather together uh, to fight against uh, God's people, against Israel, and of course, God brings uh, a great victory. And so we have, this final battle, and then we have the judgment of Satan. And I actually argue that that's already been um, ex- expressed as well in chapter seventeen and eighteen, and then again at the end of chapter nineteen. And so we come to this um, a peculiar little uh, event. But if you look back at at chapter twenty and verse three. Um, talking about the mighty angel throws Satan into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And so when we get to verse 7, basically, now we've got the explanation, or or at least the the, um, the, the, the further explanation, um, Uh, revelation of what that is. So in verse 3, all we have is he's going to be released for a short time after the thousand years, but when you get to 7 through 10, here's his release, and it is described for us. So Satan's going to be released from his prison, so that initial judgment that we see at the beginning, where he's bound for a thousand years, is now suspended for a short period of time. And I don't really want to take time to, to go into it. I can't even remember if I talked about it last week or the week before. But Paul says something very similar in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 when he's talking about the, the, the rise of the man of lawlessness. And he, he makes this statement. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and then he says something that we don't, we, we don't really necessarily know uh, with, with exact precision what Paul was talking about. And he says, and you know what restrains him. It's neuter. What restrains him? Then Paul says later in that very same passage that, um, that this wicked one, so the man of lawlessness... Um, is actually going to have, in a sense, a f- freer reign once he who restrains or that which restrains is taken out of the way. And so there's a sense where um, it's, there's there's sort of a similar parallel where Satan has been bound, he's been restrained for, uh, for a, a great deal of time. And Paul's talking about Um, in a sense, the restraint of the mystery of lawlessness, but there's coming a time where that restraint is lifted. And it's worth thinking about. um, Our country, for instance, we've lived under the benefits of common grace for a very long time. And although I would argue that under the, under the New Covenant, there's no such thing technically as a Christian nation, there are nations that are profoundly influenced, impacted, and shaped by the Christian faith. Western civilization, by the way, has been profoundly impacted by Christianity. Okay? There's a reason why it's been Western civilization that has demonstrated advancements in education and technology and science and medicine and all those things. And actually, uh, it it is Western civilization that has made incredible advances in humanitarian effort, relieving suffering, um, doing good to people. And it's the influence of Christianity and that, that, that common grace has been something that has been prevalent in our nation and in the West in general for a very long time. But now what are you seeing? You're actually seeing that influence recede. You're seeing common grace, in a sense, be pulled back. And when you start dealing with the things that we're dealing with morally, politically, ethically, then you start to realize that the, that the kindness of God's common grace, which restrains evil, right? that's what common grace does. Common grace restrains evil. You go, well, there's always evil. Absolutely true. But if you pull back on that which restrains evil, you're going to have even more evil, right? And that, of course, is what's happening before our very eyes. And so Satan's released for a short period of time, and he comes out to deceive the nations. And so what is he doing? Well, he's doing that which he was restrained from doing, right? So remember, the binding and imprisonment of Satan was so that he would no longer deceive the nations. Now he's released for a short period of time in order to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, and then, then you have this mention of Gog and Magog, which, of course, goes back to Ezekiel 38 and 39. And what is he going to do? He's released... Now, notice the deception. The deception is not just the deception of the cults or the deception of false teaching, or it is, it is a deception that entices the nations to gather for the war against Christ. Okay? That's what the deception is for. And so you've got the four corners and he gather, gathers them together for, and then here's the phrase, the war. Now the war, the war, as I've already mentioned, is is has been previously um, dealt with but then here's here's the picture. So the nations gather for the war coming under the deceptive influence of Satan himself, and John describes it as the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Now, I've been um, uh, and just I, I, I feel gen- genuinely charitable towards other eschatological positions. But as I, I read this um, to me, the reason it fits better at the end of the age before christ 's ret- return as opposed to after a literal thousand year millennial reign on Jesus by Jesus is if you have Jesus reigning on the earth um, and then all of a sudden you have more enemies than the sand of the seashore, there's something that's incongruous about that, right? And so this is is the final battle, and they come to a broad plain of the earth. Now, of course, what what is the famous broad plain in Scripture? What's that? Yeah, Valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, right? I mean, this is... Um, so the Valley of Megiddo, uh, which which is kind of in, we, we talked about it before, but it's it's more mountainous than just a a plain. But there there is this plain, and it is um, it becomes it becomes the very um, symbol of of the battle, right? And so they gather and they come to this the broad plain of the earth, and then notice what they do. It says, they surround the camp of the saints. So Greg Beal says, the camp of the saints is an allusion to the camp of the Israelites in the desert. The church has been located in the desert in chapter 12, verses 6 and 14, understood as the place of God's protection during the church age, so the reference is appropriate. So in other words, the battle is focused on The powers of this world under satanic deception and influence that come together and they surround the people of God. The beloved city, which I think is still the same as the camp of the saints, which is the new Jerusalem. People and place end up coalescing. And so here they are. And this is like the big, the big showdown. It doesn't get any bigger than this. Satanically deceived nations gather to do what? To bring an end to the church? To bring an end to the people of God with with evil intention? So we we Psalm thirty six right? Evildoers. <laughs> These are the consummate evil doers you ever see the rocky movies yeah. so really the only one i liked was the first one but you watch the other ones just because you can't help it everyone there's there's a there's there's this battle. There's this big fight, right? You got Rocky Balboa, the underdog, against Apollo Creed. And what's the whole movie about? The whole movie is just building up to that fight. And then it lasts forever with punches that would kill an ordinary man. Okay? And then finally, there's the climactic final bell. And uh, by the way, for those of you who are boxing fans, Rocky Balboa's character is based on an old heavyweight by the name of Chuck Weppner, who went 15 rounds with Muhammad Ali and almost beat him if he'd have had 15 more seconds. Right? That's the inspiration for Rocky. But I digress. So... But it's, but it's, and it's the same thing in every movie, right? It's the same thing. You have this villain, uh, you know, uh, Clubber Lang, Mr. T, in the next one, uh, you know, the, the big Russian guy in the next one, right? I mean, it just, Uh, It just goes on and on. And you have, you have the villain and you have the hero and then you have the build up and then you have the battle and the battle is intense and the battle goes round after round after round. And so what I want you to think of is is Revelation 7, or Revelation 20, starting verse 7, is like the build-up to this battle. They're all gathered. They've come to the valley of Megiddo. They're, they're ready for Armageddon. They're ready to destroy the people of God. They are there like the sand of the seashore. They are satanically influenced, satanically deceived, and then fire comes down from heaven and devours them. Boom, it's over this would this would like never make like a really good movie because it's the, the build up to the battle is then just over in a flash because there's this divine judgment that comes out of heaven and boom it's just done it's like it's like satan doesn't even get one punch in right it's just over this imagery of fire coming down from heaven, you might remember. Um, it's kind of an Elijah thing, right? Uh, <laughs> so Ahab wants uh, Elijah, and so he sends uh, a captain of 50s, and of fifty, and, and of course, um, Elijah's like, eh, I ain't going. And then, you know, fire comes down, consumes them, And then, can you imagine getting the, you know getting the assignment to be the next guy, right? So the next guy goes and he's like, okay, well maybe that was a freak accident and then uh, Elijah's like, nope, and then fire wah, psh, consumes him. By by the time the third captain uh, 50 is sent, he kind of knows what's going to happen and he's kind of and so he starts to plead, right? And so but that fire coming down from heaven is just like a sign of divine judgment. God's just taking care of business, right? And in fact, the Apostle Paul uses imagery um, in in Second Thessalonians one and two about this about this immediate destruction, and then in chapter two, um, the the man of lawlessness is destroyed by the by the, the the breath of his mouth. Right now in Revelation, it's the sword coming out. I would argue that, that it ends up being the same imagery, but the divine judgment comes and it is swift. There's not even a, a fight. I mean, I don't know if you're boxing fans, but this was faster than Mike Tyson fighting Marvis Frazier. I mean, it was, that fight was over in like 34 seconds. I think this fight's like over in like a nanosecond. And so then you get Satan's final destruction, which I think is a recap of 19, 17 to 21. And it says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So there's a big difference here, right? So at the beginning, he is, he's bound and he's put into the abyss and it's sealed. Now, this is, you think of it this way. At the beginning of chapter 20, Satan is is incarcerated in county jail. Now, he's going to the eternal penitentiary. And so, the picture is is that God's triumph in Christ is so decisive that the devil who deceived him is thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, somebody's going to say... Well, is it really a lake of fire and is, it, is there real brimstone? And here's, here's the simple answer I don't know for sure, but if fire and brimstone are symbolic, the reality is worse than the symbolism. Okay. So don't take any comfort in the fact that this may be metaphorical. The, the, the reality is worse. The reality is worse. And so here Satan is thrown, and then it says, "Where and literally, the text just says, "And the devil who deceived and was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and false prophet." There's, there's no verb there. Um, so premillennialists basically see the beast and the false prophet have already been there for a thousand years. I want to argue that that's probably not. What is in view. There's no verb, and so a lot of times, Nathan can verify this, a lot of times when you have a verbless clause that is similar to the clause that precedes, you just simply borrow the verb that was used in the preceding clause. And so I don't think there's any reason not to believe this is not simultaneous. It appears that their torment begins. At the same time, and they, that's all three, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is it. This is Satan's final defeat, it is his eternal defeat, it is the ultimate victory of God over the one who is the enemy of our souls. So in 7 through 10, we end up having this picture of of a period towards the end where evil escalates, Satan is loosed. And in a sense, the picture is uh, actually of Satan gaining the upper hand on deceiving the nations. And then he's destroyed. Then he's destroyed. It makes you think, could it be that we're in that time? Right? Could it be? Could it be that what we're seeing all around us, I mean, let's face it, the way that life has changed just for us just in our lifetime has been exponential compared to our parents and our grandparents and their parents, right? Life for a very long time, for centuries, remained relatively stable. You get to the 20th century, things start to change. But just think, 2010, is that long ago? It's not long ago at all. Think about what has changed ever since the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage. We're not talking about an issue that simply has to do with gay marriage we're talking about 2010 opening the floodgates on sexual immorality and perversion the kind of wit the type of which we would have had no clue of what was coming take yourself back to 2008 and then say uh, ask yourself uh, if somebody would have told you in 2008 that there's coming a day where you get to decide whether you're male or female, okay? What would, I mean, you would have just said, well, that's, yeah, it's called gender dysphoria. It's in the DSM-5. I mean, it's uh, a, and like 1% of 1% of people suffer from it, right? You wouldn't have even thought about it. Or what would you have said if, hey, you know, there's coming a day where they're going to be passing laws that parents actually cannot prevent their child from actually having hormone treatments and, uh, and sex change operations. What would you have thought? You'd have thought, you're out of your mind. Okay? And yet here we are. Here we are. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so wh- whatever is going on, it is the escalation of evil. It is the escalation of evil. It's the recension of common grace. And you know what it does? It makes the people of God simply say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I grew up during the Cold War. You know what we used to do at Holy Family Catholic School? Well, we did earthquake drills. But we also did nuclear attack drills. Right? So we had some nun telling us, okay, you know, hide under your desk. And so, our biggest fear was what? Russia was going to push the button, right? That was, you grew up with that fear. That kind of fear pales compared to the fears that our children are going to face. that do face. The world's more unstable now than it was then. Okay. We just have a media that is employed by the prince of darkness. So it's different. Even think of the way the media used to function 40 years ago. Right? They did this thing. All right, kids, little hit lesson. So media, they used to do this thing called journalism, okay? And it was the idea of a free press, right? Not a state paper, free press. And what was their job? Their job was to defend the people by telling the truth, telling what was happening, right? Guess what? You don't even know what those days look like because they've been gone for a long time. And so, are we in that time? I don't know. But I'll tell you what, things aren't getting better. Now, you do know I'm optimistic about the gospel, but I'm pretty much a pessimist when it comes to the darkness of this present age, all right? So then the next scene, so John goes from that to the very next scene. And the next scene is one that is um, just frightening. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it. Now, by the way, this makes perfect sense. If Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, now you have to ask, well, what about all the... what about? First of all, what about all the people that actually gathered for the war to fight against uh, God and Christ and their peop- His people? Um, and then um, w- what about everybody else, right? And so you end up having this picture. There's this great white throne and Him who sat upon it. And I, just, I see this simply as the general final judgment. I don't think it's just one of many. I think both believers and unbelievers are there. And it is the white throne judgment, not to specify it as one judgment to separate it from this judgment to separate it from that judgment. The white throne is the idea of holiness or purity. I mean, Jesus returns on a white cloud. He's riding a white horse. The color white underscores purity and holiness, and then you have, and the one seated on the throne. Now, here's, here's something that's really sort of a great exercise, and that is, as you're reading the book of Revelation, so um, Ariel makes fun of me almost every morning while I do my devotions. That doesn't sound very spiritual on her part. Um, I have, if you've ever been to my house, you know I've got uh, a chair, and I've got a TV tray, and I have two cups that are just filled with different color highlighters and then different color pens. Okay, and I got a ruler and and I have a system as I read. And so by the time she walks out, I've got like eight pens in my hand. All right. Um, and so one one thing you can do is go through the book of Revelation, and I would use a purple pen because purple is for royalty. And I would just underline every time you see the one who sat upon the throne. That is a description of God in his absolute sovereignty throughout the whole book of Revelation. You get to chapters four and five in that scene in heaven, and guess what you have? The one who sat upon the throne. The one who sat upon the throne. The one who sat upon the throne. And, And... I'll tell you that that phrase, which goes all the way back to the to the first vision of, of heaven itself, and actually even uh, referenced in some of the seven letters, that little phrase, the one who sat upon the throne, is a reminder to us that no matter what is happening, no matter how much it looks like Satan is wreaking havoc in the world, no matter how much it looks like he's deceiving the nations, the fact is there's only one who's on the throne. Just one. There aren't two rival thrones. There's just one throne, and there's only one who sits upon it. And it is, in fact, God Almighty. And so here's this picture. John goes from, in a sense, from, from, from earth and that last battle, now to heaven, to this great white throne, and the one who was seated, was seated upon it. And then here's the next phrase. From whose presence, earth and heaven fled away. This phrase is used a couple other times in Revelation chapter 6 when the sixth seal is opened and uh, the wrath of the Lamb. It's used again in chapter 16, but but make no mistake about it. The idea is that God's sovereign majesty is so absolutely overwhelming that heaven and earth are fleeing away looking for a place to hide. Years ago, I don't know if the show's still on or not, but uh, the actor's studio in, uh, in New York. Um, Ariel's dad actually was a student and a teacher at the actor's studio many years ago. And the guy who ran it was uh, in recent years was a guy named James Lipton, and he would interview famous actors and actresses, and he'd have the students there. And he would end the show... Um, with the same question for everybody. If there's a heaven and you go there, what is the first thing that you'll ask God? You can imagine what some of the answers were. I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. going to complain to him about all the suffering. You know, all the typical stuff. When God appears on his throne, nobody is going to dare offer him a piece of their mind. If heaven and earth, the inanimate creation, is fleeing away, looking for a place to hide, what about us? Earth and heaven impacted by the fall of man, but no sin of their own. What about us who have sins of our own? What about us who actually are among the evildoers? What about us? So here, puny... See, this is is the problem with so much of what goes on in church today is that we forget who God is and who we are in light of who he is. He is so overwhelmingly majestic and glorious that earth and heaven try to flee away. And then John says this phrase, which is profound, and no place was found for them. What is he talking about? He's talking about that there is such a triumph of the sovereign God that all that belonged to to what at that time will be the things past, that they are all going to go away. Because God's making preparation for a new heaven and a new earth. No place found for them. And then John says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small. What does that mean, the great and the small? Everybody, everybody told you before, this is a figure of speech called merism, where you take two extremes. And so uh, heaven and earth is one, so we have that, from whose presence heaven and earth fled away. That is all of creation, right, is looking to get out of dodge. And then I saw dead, the great and the small. That is all of humanity. What a sight. How many billions and billions of souls this will be. And they're standing before the throne. And then there's this this statement and the books were opened. And another book was opened. Which was the book of life. By the way, the... Books and then the book of life are, are echoes that come to us from Daniel 7 and then Daniel 12. In fact, if you just turn over there just real quickly Daniel 7, verse 10. Well, you have to back up to verse 9. Daniel 7, 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. This is a judicial proceeding. Now, if you look over at chapter 12, we end up seeing something that's mentioned a few times in Revelation. So chapter 12, starting at verse 1, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And so there's a, there's a judicial book as, in a sense, as God takes his throne and court is in session. There are the books. But there's another book, and that is the book of life. And that is the only hope of rescue for those who stand before the throne. And so the dead were judged from the three things written in the books according to their deeds. All right, so we're going to come back to this, but let me just just point out, so here's the the, the dead, they've been been raised, all right, they've been raised, and they're standing before the throne, and the books are open, and they're judged out of the books, and then here's the phrase, according to their deeds. So what's in the books? (laughs) Their deeds. Their deeds. By the way, just good deeds? How about all deeds? Now, of course, God doesn't need a book. All right? He's omniscient. But it's the imagery of a judicial proceeding. Just think about it for a second. Your name is called. You're the next entry in the book. If this doesn't sober us, I really don't know what would. John then says, The sea gave up the dead which are in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. So, by the way, you kind of get the point, right? It's mentioned now twice we're going to be judged according to our deeds. Some commentators think that the reference to the sea because of 13.1 and 15.2 is maybe just the the, the realm of evil, right? So the sea is the idea of chaos, not just sailors who died at sea or people that got eaten by sharks, all right? The judgment is according to our deeds, Mm. If you're in Jesus and you stand before that judgment seat, you will find refuge and safety in the blood and righteousness of your Savior. If you're in Jesus, you're going to find refuge and peace because your name's in the book of life. There's something that we need to remember and that is every time judgment is mentioned in the Bible I mean every time it's always a judgment according to works You never read, uh, for instance, a judgment of faith. It's a judgment according to works. That's the consistent theme in the Psalms and the Prophets and in the New Testament Scriptures. And so, here we are, judged according to our deeds... But those who are in Jesus have confidence that their evil deeds have been purged through the blood of Christ and their good deeds have been purified through their mediator. You remember just back in chapter 19, right? The saints are clothed in white robes. You remember what John says, which are the righteous deeds of the saints, okay? And you go, oh, so you're saved by good works. No, Um, as a believer, you do good deeds empowered by God's grace and by God's spirit. God is the one who ultimately gets the glory. But think of it this way, you get the credit. I've used the illustration before about the little kid trying to mow the lawn, right? Dad offers him 10 bucks, mow the lawn. He can't even, he can't even reach the middle bar, you know, let alone. And so dad gets behind him and pushes the lawnmower. And the kid's like, cool, I'm mowing the lawn. I'm going to get 10 bucks, right? It's a child of God. By grace, by spirit. So, Jonathan Edwards, you may have heard of him, writes Though the righteous are justified by faith and not their works, yet they shall be judged according to their works. Their works shall be brought forth as the evidence of their having believed. Their faith in that great day shall be tried by its fruits. If men's works have been bad, if their lives have been unchristian, that will condemn them without asking any more questions. But if their works, when they come to be inquired into and examined, prove good and of the right sort, they shall surely be justified. It will be taken and declared as sure evidence of their having believed in Jesus Christ and being clothed With his righteousness. It's not those good deeds that save you on the last day, but those deeds actually are evidence of the faith that you profess you have. So let's, let's be abundantly clear you're saved by faith and faith alone, but that faith is evidenced by works. And that evidence is examined. So you do know what this means, don't you? That is, there are going to be people who said, Lord, Lord, did I not? Jesus is going to turn around and say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. This goes right back to James chapter 2 faith without works is dead. Can that faith save him? And by the way, the implied answer in Greek is, no way, Jose. And so the books are opened. And oh, how you want there to be evidence of a real faith, but your ultimate hope See, this is, in a sense, this is not as hard as it sounds. If your genuine hope is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, then you've had the Spirit of God living in you. And the grace of God has been operative in you. And most, most Christians, the ones that are serious about walking with Jesus, are really hard on themselves. And so I would just encourage you, um, you're probably doing better by God's grace than you think. How do I think I'm doing today? Not too good. What does God see? What is God doing? Am I a different person than I was last year? Am I a different person than I was five years ago? Am I a different person than I was 10 years ago? And the answer is yes. And that's those incremental changes that seem so microscopic to us on that last day. Lord, here's evidence that you worked a saving faith in me and that Jesus really is my hope so then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And you know what you say? Good riddance. Death is swallowed up. No more death. It's one of the promises of the new creation. Death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. Death has suffered its final defeat. And then John says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. That is the eternal state of the lost. And then John says these words And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. Second death. The death that never ends. Eternal death, ongoing death. Conscious, eternal punishment. So you know what you need to do? You better make sure your name is the in the book of life. <laughs> On this day, there will be no reprieve. No sentence will be commuted. Greg Beale says, What is it about the book of life which spares them? The fuller title of the book is the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. The life granted them in association with the book comes from their identification with the Lamb's righteous deeds and especially with his death, which implies likewise that they are identified with his resurrection life. They do not suffer judgment for their evil deeds because the Lamb has already suffered for them. He was slain on their behalf. The Lamb acknowledges before God all who are written in the book and who are identified with his righteousness And with his death. One of the most important things you can say. How about this? The only thing that you should probably say on that day is simply this I'm with him. I'm with him. The one seated at your right hand who's judging heaven and earth, he's on my side. His blood has paid for all my sins, and I'm clothed in his righteousness. The Day of Judgment is something that preachers of old used to talk about regularly. Not so much anymore. Samuel Davies, who some of you may have never heard of. Early president of Princeton after Jonathan Edwards. I just want to read this to you. Just listen to the words. Samuel Davies preached these words. We are now come to the grand crisis upon which the eternal states of all mankind turns. I mean the passing of the great decisive sentence. Heaven and earth are all silence. And attention while the judge with smiles in his face and a voice sweeter than heavenly music turns to the glorious company on his right hand and pours all the joys of heaven into their souls in transporting sentence of which he has graciously left us a copy, quote, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Every word is full of emphasis, full of heaven, and exactly agreeable to the desires of those to whom it is addressed. They desired and longed and languished to be near their Lord, and now their Lord invites them, come near me, dwell with me forever. There was nothing they desired so much as the blessing of God, nothing they feared so much as his curse. And now their fears are entirely removed and their designs fully accomplished for the supreme judge pronounces them blessed of his father. They, are all, they were all poor in spirit, most of them poor in this world, and all sensible of their unworthiness. How, un, how agreeably then are they surprised to hear themselves invited to a kingdom, invited to inherit a kingdom as princes of the blood royal born to thrones and crowns? How will they be lost in wonder, joy, and praise to find that the great God entertained thoughts of love towards them before they had a being or the world in which they had dwelt had a foundation and that he was preparing a kingdom for them while they were nothing, unknown, even an idea except only to himself? O oh, brethren, dare any of us expect this sentence will be passed upon us? Methinks the very thought overwhelms us. Methinks our feeble frame must be unable to bear up under the ecstatic hope of so sweetly oppressive a blessedness. Oh, if this be our sentence in that day, it is no matter what we suffer in the intermediate space that sentence would compensate for all and annihilate the sufferings of 10,000 years. But hark, another sentence breaks forth from the mouth of the angry judge like vengeful thunder. Nature gives a tremendous groan. The heavens lower and gather blackness. The earth trembles and guilty millions sink with the sound, with the horror at the sound. And see, he whose words are works, whose fiat produces worlds out of nothing, he who could remain or could remand 10,000 worlds into nothing at a frown, he whose thunder quelled the insurrection of rebel angels in heaven and hurled them headlong down, down, down to the dungeon of hell. See, he turns to the guilty crowd on his left hand. His angry countenance discovers the righteous indignation that glows in his breast. His countenance bespeaks him inexorable, and that there is now no room for prayers or tears. Now, the sweet, mild, mediatorial hour is past, and nothing appears but the majesty and terror of the judge Horror and darkness frown upon his brow, and vindictive lightning flashes forth from his eyes. And now, oh, who can bear the sound he speaks? Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Oh, the cutting emphasis of every word, depart, depart from me, from me the author of all good, the fountain of all good, the fountain of all happiness, depart with all my heavy, all-consuming curse upon you. Depart into fire, into everlasting fire, prepared, furnished with fuel, and blown up into rage, prepared for the devil and his angels. Once your companions in sin, and now the companions and executors of your punishment. Now the grand period has arrived in which the final everlasting states of mankind are unchangeably settled. From this all-important era, their happiness or misery runs on in one uniform, uninterrupted tenor. No change, no gradation, but from glory to glory in the scale of perfection, or from gulf to gulf in hell. This is the day in which all the schemes of providence carried on for 10,000 years, for thousands of years terminate. Time was, but it is no more. Now all the sons of men enter upon a duration not to be measured by the revolutions of sun, nor by days and months and years. Now eternity dawns, a day that shall never see an evening. And this terribly illustrious morning is solemnized with the execution of the sentence And no sooner is it passed than immediately the wicked will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See the astonished, thunderstruck multitude on the left hand with sullen, sullen horror and grief and despair in their looks, writhing with agony, crying and wringing their hands, glancing a wishful eye toward the heaven which they have now forever lost." Dragged away by devils to the place of execution. See, hell expands her voracious jaws and swallows them up. And now, an eternal farewell to earth and to all of its enjoyments. Farewell to the cheerful light of heaven. Farewell to hope, that sweet relief of affliction. Heaven frowns from, uh, upon them from above, and the horrors of hell spread far and wide around them, and conscience within prays upon their hearts. Judgment Day is absolutely certain more certain than the sun coming up this morning. And heaven and hell are the only two realities that eternity will know. No purgatory. No pardons. Eternal destinies fixed by what was done here on earth. And so believe in Christ. Turn to Christ. Make Christ your only hope in life and in death, because when on that day you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your master. There will be no greater words that could ever be heard. Nor will there be any more terrifying words than depart from me. Make sure your name is written in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, what what an awful, awesome sight is given to us in the words of this passage. And yet it will only be the experience of that day that will fully exegete this text for us. And so, Father, we pray for those who are careless about their souls. We pray for those that that seek their own things, their own pleasure. They seek the world. And, Father, we pray that even tonight, Lord, whether they're young or old, we pray, Father, that the weight, the gravity, the awesomeness of eternity would weigh upon them until they find peace with Christ. And Father, we ask that on that day our names will be found written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world. How we love the Lamb of God.